Today, I'm joined by Jay Rolls, an IT leader with an impressive track record in the cable industry. He was most recently CTO at Charter Communications, and his earlier roles included a 10-year stint at Cox Communications, where he's Senior VP of Technology. Jay is also a board member at the University of Virginia Engineering Foundation. Welcome to Living on the Edge, the network resilience podcast from OpenGear. I'm Steve Cummins, and I talk to IT thought leaders who are living on the edge of their network. Join us as we discuss business continuity, resilience, and all things networking. So, Jay, thanks for joining me on Living on the Edge. Happy to be here. So let's kick off with, uh, with a bit of background. So I know you've worked for a number of communication companies both here in the U.S. and, and I believe you, you spent some time in Germany as well. So maybe you can just talk us through your path from a design engineer through to becoming CTO of one of the world's largest cable providers. Sure. I'll, uh, I'll try to keep this short, but as, as you mentioned in the intro, you probably pieced together. I went to the University of Virginia and got my uh, electrical engineering degree there at the engineering school. And my first job out of college was actually working at the CIA. And, you know, in typical fashion, they contacted me. I did not contact them. And in that job, uh, it was interesting. Um, this, this is the funny things that happened in your career. I was working on cryptography. I'm going to show my age a little bit here because that was back in 1983. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is the most archaic thing. This is not going to do my career any good. Sort of flash forward, of course, and cryptography is critically important to the uh, security of so much of our communications these days. So you never know the skill sets that you're going to run upon in your in your career and how they may apply later. And if there's any theme that I would that I would emphasize to perhaps younger listeners, and that is your career can take some quite some random paths, and really it's about taking advantage of opportunities when they come along. So I spent my first third of my career in defense and intelligence. And I, I joined a company, BBN, which I think now has been absorbed as part of level three through a long past. We, back in the 80s, were doing the defense data network, which was interconnected with ARPANET. And that, that was the very early days of the internet. And again, randomly, I happened to start working on the internet in 1986. That obviously set me up well from a skill standpoint of everything that emerged from an internet perspective. And uh, I worked over in Germany, as you said, for nine years, working mostly on the Defense Data Network, which was an X25 packet switch network. And then came back in 95 to the US and, and joined Cox and joined the cable industry and really have spent you know, the last 25 years in a really fun career in the cable space as cable got into broadband and then eventually phone and, and digital video and everything that, that you know, cable operators have done as service providers here. That's a, that's a quick snapshot. You know, I, I got a, a little bit of a Forrest Gump sense there. You, you were quite, quite modest in saying, well, you just happened to be around early days of cryptography and just happened to be working on the internet early days. So you've obviously been in some, some interesting situations. So 
As CTO, I can imagine, you know, you don't get to do too much of the hands-on work. Your day-to-day is is managing some large technical teams. So can you just talk about some of the challenges you, you find with, with managing that large team of technical stuff? Sure. When you do get large teams, you you have no choice but to focus more on leadership, focus more on strategy. You know, you're not you're not doing the engineering anymore. And so, I mean, the day-to-day type of hands-on engineering, really it's about a sense of mission, aligning your staff, figuring out where is this org headed, trying to be as clear as possible about what that looks like, obviously aligning with the or your overall organization's path, and then helping lay down that, that roadmap of, you know, what do we need to do to get there? And to make sure that we're being smart about the things that we're we're doing today are going to help us on that roadmap of you know where where we're trying to head. So a lot of different strategic choices that you make along the way. I would say I'm a very big believer in pushing decision making down and listening to your staff. I, I've seen some incredible innovation come out of my teams, and was always so proud to help support them and give them an environment that allowed them to be creative and, and come up with these, uh, their, you know, their own ideas. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, people think of, uh, of artists and graphic design as being creative, but uh, there's a lot of creativity in, in the network side of things as well. So, so I appreciate, as you mentioned, a lot of your work has been at, at the strategy level, but you know, this is the living on the edge, uh, podcast. And, and I think, you know, a lot of, networking folks have this in common that that they feel like they're living on the edge and and there's always something about to happen any any story you'd like to share where you know you're you're living on the edge moment well generally speaking i i I was always amazed now we were large i worked for large providers but i always was amazed how often we broke people's equipment and i like to say getting anything to work on a lab bench quantity one is you know, a lot of times can be pretty simple. Making it work at scale is a whole different challenge. And so I, I was always amazed how often I saw equipment break and, and vendors say, wow, we've, we've never seen that happen before. <laughs> um, I, did, I did have one notable, well, I have probably a bunch of stories, but one memorable one was an issue that happened in one of the cable properties. I'll, I'll leave names unnamed here. Back in the early days, Toshiba was in the, it, making cable modems. They don't they don't do that any longer. And we managed to somehow brick, um, and I'll define that term for those that may not know it, brick tens of thousands of Toshiba cable modems. And when I say brick, we 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 managed to send codes in a, in a certain way that disabled those modems and turned them into something that was no more valuable than a brick and completely useless. And there was no way of resuscitating them online. So uh, you can imagine how unhappy we, we our customer, a couple of tens of thousands of customers were and the magnificent effort that had to then take place to quickly set up a distribution location so that we could have customers drive by with their modems and swap them out. 
Weeks and weeks later, it turned out we figured out there there would have been a way possibly that we could have resuscitated all those modems, but of course by then it was too late. You know, so yeah, that's a that's one of those uh, stories that a lot of uh, network engineers will have in one uh, kind of flavor or another, and uh, it's that's your worst nightmare. And so you spend a lot of time trying to make sure you never find yourself in those situations. For sure, that, that's some expensive bricks that you were you were left holding. I'm sure, um, but but it it also brings up your point about the creativity of the network teams, right? Because I'm sure at that point everybody was huddling and trying to work out what what's the quickest way to get this back up online. Right. Um, so so let's talk about the strategy side of things. You've obviously seen a lot of changes throughout your career. What do you see over the next five years as being the the biggest change that's going to impact network engineering? Well, delivery networks are evolving. They're evolving very quickly. It's, it's, it's interesting to follow. And you're seeing an increased use of fiber. Even, even a, a cable operator has a lot of fiber in their infrastructure. And so what I've, I've sort of noticed here in the last couple of years is, you know, it used to be, we, we would think of it in, in very simple terms, three sort of boxes. You had the services that often lived in a data center or in the cloud. You had a network that connected that, and then you had the, the home connected that, to that network. But if I dive into the sort of the network piece, you know, that was typically lots of, you know, routers, switches, and interconnects, and could be hub and spoke, could be ring architectures. But what I'm noticing is we're with, with more and more fiber and how fiber is being used in the not the last mile necessarily, but in the the general metro access network, I, I'm noticing that we're, we're, I think we're going to see more passive use of fiber. We're going to see more point to multi-point use of fiber where you don't have as much intermediary equipment in the path. And that hopefully will simplify things. The flip side of that, though, is I'm seeing more and more drive towards intelligence at the edge and, you know, sort of smart edge equipment, even maybe services served at the edge of the network. And it's proliferating in much larger numbers. And so that's a more complex topology and managing that is going to be a challenge. Even on the cloud side of things where you may have had a server in the past that you had to worry about, as you know, those services are morphing into microservices that may be running in VM and containers. And while those microservices are made to be resilient and to be able to spin up and spin down very easily, that nonetheless can complicate your service delivery. And you're going to have to think really carefully about how you manage the health of that, that ecosystem. So that's interesting. So the first part of your answer was about simplifying things, right? Pushing more through fiber and then switches immediately to the complexity of the cloud and microservices and, and all of that good stuff. Um, one thing you, you mentioned there, um, you used the word resilience. So, you know, network resilience is, is a topic that I hear a lot of people talking about right now. So how would you define that idea of network resilience? For any service provider, network provider, you know, resilience is obviously very important. You you need you need to be reliable and have 
really incredible uptime and service availability that's always there. And so it's sort of the generic, you know, definition of what you'd expect for resilience. But what I'd say I'm seeing beyond that is with this proliferation of services in smaller chunks, whether it be a microservice and a, and a data center, or it be a, an intelligent piece of edge equipment providing some kind of termination or services out at the edge, that's resulting in a proliferation, exponential proliferation of number of endpoints that you have to worry about for service delivery. And so in the future, really things like autonomy and self-healing are really going to be more critical when it comes to looking at an overall network resilience picture. And I, I see the industry starting to focus on that, but I, I, I still see, you know, I think there's, there's a maturing process that we're going to need to go through there to, to get to a sort of robust level. Yep, that makes sense. And, and certainly as the complexity increases, you know, the resilience just continues to expand and become a bigger issue. Um, so another big change, you know, we've talked a lot about 5G uh, in the past, uh, but I'm curious how you think that's going to impact the cable industry specifically. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sort of one of those friend or foe type questions. I think it's a little of both. It's an opportunity, but it also could be a threat from a, from a cable provider perspective. First of all, the, as you've seen in North America, the cable operators are getting into the mobile service. So um, 5G is a, is a tool in the tool belt for, for, for mobility and mobile services, just like any, any other mobile operator. So you'll, you'll see them using that in the same way. And then secondly, there's a pretty healthy cell backhaul business that the MSOs take advantage, the cable operators take advantage of. And so 5G, as you can imagine, is just going to be really driving credible demand for backhaul uh, services. So that's, that's an opportunity. And then, you know, then the question is, how much of a fixed wireless type threat does 5G pose to the cable operators? And, you know, we could do a whole one hour podcast just on that topic. So I don't really want to dive on all the bullet points on that. But, you know, that's being looked at pretty hard. There's a lot of a lot of thought going into what could that look like? How much of a threat is it? I think there are certain scenarios where it could be a threat. I don't yet see it as a broad threat. But, you know, I, uh, I think it's something to keep a close eye on for sure. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting one. I, I know a couple of years ago when 5G first came out and everyone was just focused on you know, what you could do with your cell phone. But obviously, 5G is going to really change the landscape, I think, in, in a lot of ways beyond being able to watch a video on, on your iPhone. Just changing tack a little bit, you know, over, over the years, I'm sure you've, you've worked with a lot of people and, and learned from a lot of people. Just, just curious, anyone, you know, a mentor or an influencer that you'd just like to give a hat tip to and, uh, you know, share, maybe share some of their advice? When I was young, uh, younger and living in Germany, I had a boss who was in the U.S., Bob Bartlett, when I was at BBN. And uh, he, was, he was probably the best boss I ever had. He was, he was phenomenal. He pushed me really hard, but in a very fair way. And so, you know, it's, some of us are lucky enough to have had bosses like that along the way. And unfortunately, Bob's no longer with us, but I just have such positive memories and uh 
he he was an early influence. I mean, in, within the cable industry, I've had some some great bosses, Alex Best and Chris Bowick, both over at, at Cox. Adam Grosser, when I was at the the startup at home during the dot com, during the dot com boom in the you know 2000, 2001 time frame when I was out in uh, Silicon Valley. So yeah, it's one of the things you treasure about a a career is the just incredibly inspiring people that that you can come across. You know, those are memories I definitely cherish. Absolutely, yeah, it's nice to hear. Um, so. For folks that are maybe still still working their way through and, and looking to find out more about networking trends or keeping up with things, where where do you go to keep up with with trends? Whether it's you know websites, podcasts, whatever it may be. I'll look at websites like Reading, get the, the Daily Digest from them, other kind of publications. Obviously, standards groups like SCTE. We have SCTE Expo coming up here soon, and there are a ton of papers that, like a hundred papers, I think, that will get published as part of that process. Occasionally, IEEE. There's there's so many, you know, Spectrum Magazine of IEEE. Spectrum Magazine is an amazing. Uh, that's more general reading. Uh, that's sort of wider and higher level, but always inspiring. So. Yeah, those are those are my some of my go tos for uh, finding information and staying on top of things. All right, thanks for sharing those. You know the uh, the Spectrum magazine for IEEE. It always used to amaze me that that would appear in the uh, in the lounges at uh, the United lounges at airports, and I, I could never understand why, <laughs> why they would think that was uh, that was a good place to have it. But anyway, I agree that it's an interesting magazine. Uh, so, so just wrapping up here, I know you're you mentioned your your uh, advising some tech companies. I know you're on a couple of boards um, for some some volunteer organizations. If people do want to get in touch with you or find out more, what's the best way for them to connect with you? The, the reality is probably LinkedIn is the best way. The, there's a funny story there, though. I never, I never had a LinkedIn account until this year. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a reason for that. I always thought when I, you know, when I was working as an operator for this past whatever 20 plus years, I always was afraid that if I had a LinkedIn account, it would be just a huge honeypot for the vendors to bombard me with information, not really recognizing that there's some pretty good tools on LinkedIn for for filtering out some of that. So I never was on LinkedIn until this past, when the pandemic hit, I created the LinkedIn account. And so now I'm sort of like a convert. It's like, wow, this is a pretty, pretty good tool. And I do like it and have connected with a lot of people. So LinkedIn's probably the best way to get in touch with me. Yeah, it's funny how it's evolved. You know, I remember early days, people were suspicious if you were on LinkedIn because they thought you must be looking for a job, right? It was it was really just an online resume service. And, and now I think uh, for a lot of people, that's where you get a lot of your industry information and, and actually just keep in touch with people. So Absolutely, uh, absolutely. So, I, so I'm, glad, I'm glad you've seen the light and you're on LinkedIn with the rest of us. Well, Jay, great. Thanks for, thanks for sharing your thoughts with us on, on Living on the Edge. Well, thanks so much for having me, and I look forward to you know, listening to your future episodes. Perfect. Thanks very much, Jay. You've been listening to Living on the Edge, the network resilience podcast from Open Gear. To add resilience to your network in data centers and out to the edge, visit opengear.com.